Shalom. How many people remember what that means? Peace, wholeness, well-being. It's also a greeting. It means hello, and it also means goodbye. Now, what other word in what other language also means both hello and goodbye? Aloha. Shalom and aloha may mean both hello and goodbye, but they don't mean I don't know whether I'm coming or going. Also, if you have to be Jewish and from Hawaii, I guess you could say Shalom. <laughs> My name is Peter Parkes. I'm with the Christian Jew Foundation. We're an international gospel outreach to the Jewish people as well as to all who would listen. And we fashion our ministry after Paul, who always went to the Jew first. Uh, that's why he wrote in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the gospel, some people say that God has forsaken the Jewish people as a covenant nation, but if the gospel isn't for the Jew first, then it's neither the power of God unto salvation anymore. And so we find, just as was Paul's experience, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, that when you reach out to the Jew first, everybody gets to hear the message. I don't think I'm this long. How's that? Sorry. Everybody gets to hear the message, and more people who aren't Jewish end up getting saved than those that are Jewish. When you came in this morning, you might have received one of our brochures. I'd like to be able to stay in touch with you. It tells a little bit more about our ministry. We do street outreach, visitation, Bible studies, fellowships. And I'd like to send you my regular update letter on a quarterly basis. If you tear off the last panel, it's perforated. And you'll notice a place for your name and address. If you could hand that in to me after the service, I'll be able to let you know a little bit more about what we're doing, how you can be praying for us, and how you can be praying for those we're trying to reach. This morning, we're going to be looking at the end times. And I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23. It's actually Matthew 24 that we're going to be looking at, but we want to get a little context from back in Matthew 23. And so we'll begin with verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, yet you would not. Jesus is lamenting over the fact that the Jewish people as a nation, and especially the religious establishment of his day, have dug in their heels and rejected the ministry and messiahship of Yeshua. That's the Hebrew way to say Jesus. And so the nation as a whole is going to reject him. And he goes on to say in verse 38, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Well, what house? As we'll see as we look at the context of what's going on, Jesus is talking about the temple. And the Jewish people seem to think that as long as the temple was there, everything was okay. And uh, as long as God's presence was there, it was indestructible. But God's presence left the temple back just about the time of the Babylonian exile. And so it was not impregnable. And in verse 38, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. 
Jesus will not return until the Jewish people recognize him for who he is. And so as we do the work of Jewish evangelism, whether it's on the front lines or behind the scenes, from our point of view, from our vantage point, we're hastening the day of God, the return of the Lord. Now we can begin Matthew 24, verse 1, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And no doubt the disciples were extolling the virtues of this wonderful edifice, this ornate building of the temple. It was very fancy and very decorated. And again, the Jewish people thought as long as the temple was there, everything was just fine. But then Jesus went on to say in verse 2, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall be not thrown down. So the disciples must have been pretty much thrown for a loop when Jesus said that. And that's exactly what happened in 70 AD. Well, we change the scene now. Jesus has gone with his disciples from the temple in Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. And it takes maybe an hour and a half, two hours to walk up there. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him saying privately, tell us when shall these things be? When shall what things be? When shall the destruction of the temple be? That's what Jesus just said. And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And what is the sign of the end of the age? Well, the answer to the question, the first question, what is the sign of the imminent destruction of the temple is answered in the gospel according to Luke, verse 20, chapter 21, verse 20. And I'll go ahead and read it. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. And so when the believers saw that Jerusalem was surrounded by armies, that meant that the temple was going to be destroyed and Jerusalem was going to be sacked. Well, Jesus, before he begins answering the other questions, first says, what is not the end of the age? And that's a very Jewish thing. You say, what's not the answer before you give the answer? And in verse 4, Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. So this must be important stuff. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end of the age, that is, is not yet. So those are things that are going to transpire, but don't necessarily indicate the end of the age. Now in verse 7, Jesus tells us what does indicate the end of the age. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And that's a Hebrew idiomatic expression that means wars on a worldwide scale. And I believe that, that the first sign, that's the first sign, has already been given. If we had a world war today, doubtless with so many countries having nuclear capability, we'd destroy the planet. And so I believe World War I, many historians agree that World War II was simply an extension of World War I, was the first sign of the end of the age. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. And wars cause famines and pestilences, which we see today. And if you do a study on earthquakes since around 1900, you'll see that they've been steadily increasing in frequency and intensity. All these are the beginning of sorrows, Jesus says in verse 8. This word sorrows is the Greek word for a woman going into labor about to give birth. And so the Jewish prophets and literature talk about the coming messianic age 
first, before that, just prior to that, as a woman going into travail, going into labor, about to give birth. Now, Paul said at the, in the last days there would be the great falling away. Uh, you can see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You can turn there if you want. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What's happened here, uh, some false teachers have crept into the congregation and are saying that the church is already in the tribulation. And Paul goes on to say, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as from us, as the day of Messiah is at hand. Whenever that term, day of Messiah, day of Christ, the day of the Lord, whenever that term is used, without exception, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always talking about that seven-year period known as the Tribulation, the 70th seven of Daniel in chapter 9. And then Paul goes on to say, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that word in the Greek, falling away, is apostasia. And so there's going to be a great falling away of evangelicalism just before the Lord returns. And we see that there's a convergence of events beginning around 1850, 1900s, indicating the end of the age. And we see that there are wholesale denominations and congregations that teach that Jewish people don't need Jesus to be saved. If Jewish people don't need Jesus to be saved, neither does anyone else. Or perhaps saying that Jesus isn't God, but maybe he's God Jr. Well, either Jesus is Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. And there's also been the ordaining of homosexuals and the affirmation of a homosexual lifestyle. This is not according to the word of God. And uh, I take a uh, prophetic historical approach to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. In other words, each of these seven churches, if you look at them geographically, they form a circle, is a particular dominant type of church throughout the church age in sequence. And the second to last church is the church at Philadelphia, which is, was the church of the open door of missions. And just prior to 1850, there wasn't a country that missionaries couldn't go into to preach the gospel. And they get all they get is commendation because in verse chapter three, verse um, verse eight, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and has kept my word, and has not and has not denied my name. So this type of church, which was the second to last before the number seven church, the church of Laodicea, took advantage of the open door for missions and sent out missionaries and had a testimony in their local sphere of influence. But the last church, the church of Laodicea, has no commendation but purely criticism. This is the type of church that's going to enter into the tribulation. You see, these churches in Revelation are not spirit-filled churches, they are visible churches. 
And visible churches are filled with people who are Christians and people who aren't Christians. And if you notice what the message that Jesus has for this particular gathering in Laodicea is not very good. He says in verse 15, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that were cold or hot. I used to think that Jesus either wants you on fire for the Lord or cold. But it turns out that in Laodicea they had hot springs and cold springs. And the hot springs had therapeutic value. And the cold springs were good for refreshing. And so lukewarm water is good for nothing. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Jesus is saying that this gathering of people is lukewarm. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They're spiritually blind. This is a gathering of people that are not believers. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. White raiment, whenever it's used symbolically in the book of Revelation, is always talking about salvation. Jesus is telling these people, you need to get saved. This is the type of congregation that's going to enter into the tribulation. Lukewarm. And that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou might seest. And so we've seen the great falling away among evangelicalism, which was the church at Philadelphia, until now the church uh, age of Laodicea. Now probably the most obvious indication of the end of the age is the regathering of the Jewish people back into the land. So you can back, go back to Matthew 24. Now, beginning around 1850, started the modern Zionist movement, where Jewish people in greater and greater numbers, there was already a remnant in the land, but in more and more Jewish people were re-entering the land of Israel. And we have to ask ourselves this question. Is the modern state of Israel a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy? Let me repeat that question. Is the modern state of Israel a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy? How many people say yes? How many people say no? Okay. Well, as you look at the scriptures, which is our final authority and guideline to spiritual matters and faith, we see that when the Jewish people are regathered back into the land, we see a different picture than what's going on today. Let me read some of those passages to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 8. And it shall come to pass, when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse, that's the blessing for obeying the law of Moses and the curse for being disobedient, which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations whither the Lord thy God hath driven thee, and shalt return unto the Lord thy God. That word return in the Hebrew means repentance. So God is saying when the Jewish people are already dispersed and they bring to mind they've been disobedient to the word of God that they will repent and will obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That's hardly the case today of the Jewish people back in the land of Israel. 
that then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity, in other words, the captivity is the dispersion of the Jewish people, and have compassion upon thee and will return. Well, who will return? That's the Lord who will return. And so we see in order for the Lord to return that he would have to have come in the first place. And so this is talking about the second coming of the Messiah. That once the Jewish people repent and accept him for who he is, the Messiah will return. And gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God hath scattered thee. Now Zechariah says that as a uh, direct result of the rejection of Jesus and the gospel that the Jewish people would be dispersed. We can see that in Zechariah chapter 13. Verse 7. Awake, O Lord, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's see. My companion, my fellow, my companion. Smite the shepherd, which is just what happened when Jesus was re rejected, and the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. So not only as a direct result of rejecting Jesus, his ministry, the testimony of his resurrection and soon return and death for our sins, the sins of mankind, that the temple would be destroyed and the Jewish people would be dispersed all over the land. So we just looked at Deuteronomy, and that's certainly not the case today, that the Jewish people have repented and accepted the Lord for who he is, and he has returned. Let's look at Jeremiah 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again onto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Hardly the case today. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. This is not, the modern state of Israel is not a direct fulfillment of this return of the exiles that just spoken here by Jeremiah. Look at Ezekiel 28. Verse 25 and 26. Thus saith the Lord God, I shall have gathered the house of Israel from the people among whom they are scattered and shall be sanctified in them in the sight of the heathen, the nations. Then shall they dwell in their land that I have given to my servant Jacob. And verse 26 says, And they shall dwell safely therein and shall build houses and plant vineyards. Yea, they shall dwell with confidence. That is not the case of the modern state of Israel. And finally, Jeremiah 30, verse 10. Therefore, fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. It's not happening today. In fact, Hosea, in chapter 5, has this to say. Hosea is the first minor prophet after the book of Daniel. 
chapter 5, the last verse. I will go, this is the Lord speaking, the prophet is speaking in the first person because he's the spokesman for God. I will go and return to my place. In order for the Lord to return to his place, that would mean he would have had to come in the first place. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus returned to his place. Not only that, but this is a clear testimony of scripture in the Old Testament that the Messiah is not an ordinary man, but is, that, but is God himself. And so God says he would return to his place until they acknowledge their offense, talking about the Jewish people. And that word offense is in the singular because it's talking about a specific offense, a specific transgression of the Jewish people, and that is the rejection of the ministry of the Messiah, his death, resurrection, and soon return. And so until they acknowledge their offense, I will not return, and until they seek my face in their affliction. That word affliction could also be translated as tribulation. They will seek me early. And so the Jewish people will not seek the Lord until they're involved in a tribulation. And that's one of the purposes of the tribulation, is to bring the Jewish people back to the Lord, because it's in their affliction. And how often for ourselves, it isn't until things get going really tough that we earnestly seek the Lord, that they too will come to the Lord in their affliction. And so the various passages, and there's more than what we've just looked at, are not fulfillments of the modern state of Israel. However, if we look at Ezekiel 20, we'll see another picture. Ezekiel 20, verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand, with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. And it was out of the ashes of the Holocaust that the nation of Israel, when fury was poured out, was born. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. The bond of the covenant is the new covenant. And so the tribulation is to discipline the Jewish people and bring them to faith in Yeshua. That's the Jewish way to say Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Look at Ezekiel 22, verse 19. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, ye are all become dross. Behold, therefore, I will gather you in the midst of Jerusalem, as they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it to melt it. And so a smelter who melts metal, wants to get the impurities out, so he heats it up and the impurities rise to the surface. So will I gather you in mine anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. And so as the smelter removes the impurities from the metal, eventually he'll be able to see, once it's pure, his reflection 
in the metal. And that's exactly what God is looking for in the Jewish people, the restoration of his image onto them as a nation. Because God has made a covenant with the Jewish people as no other nation. That he has done. In verse 21, Yea, I will gather you and blow upon you in the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst thereof. As silver is melted in the midst of the furnace, so shall ye be melted in the midst thereof, and ye shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury upon you. So you might ask me, well, pastor, which one is it? Are they going to be gathered in a state of safety uh, and belief or gathered in ready to undergo God's chastisement in, and the rod of judgment in order to come to faith? One more scripture, Zephaniah. How many sermons do you hear from the book of Zephaniah? Zephaniah is just before the minor prophets, just before Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation not desired. Before the decree bring forth, before the day pass as the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So Zephaniah is clearly saying that it will be a day of wrath and it will happen before the day of the Lord, before the tribulation, that the Jewish people will be regathered, ready to undergo God's chastisement and discipline. And so we have to ask ourselves, which one is it? And how do we uh, answer such a dilemma? I mean, it does certainly seem that the modern state of Israel is a direct fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but some of the prophecies don't say such. Well, Isaiah gives us the answer in chapter 11, verse 11. And he says, hear the word of the Lord, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamat and from the islands of the sea. Isaiah is clearly saying that there would be two international regatherings of the Jewish people. And the first one is in a state of unbelief, ready to undergo God's chastisement and discipline. And then in the middle of the tribulation, the Jewish people in the land of Israel will be scattered once again. And then at the Lord's return, he will regather them and they will be regenerated as a nation. Back to Matthew 24. Now in verse 9, Jesus begins to describe the conditions in the first half of the tribulation. Then shall they del deliver you up to be afflicted, and of course afflicted could be translated tribulation, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. 
Jesus is giving a word of encouragement that even though things, times are going to be difficult during the first half of the tribulation, that a remnant will survive, a remnant filled with faith and the Spirit will survive the tribulation. And then in verse 14 comes a climax where he says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. And we know according to Revelation chapter 7 that there's going to be 144,000 not Jehovah Witnesses and not Mormons, but Jews sealed by the Spirit of God for protection and service. And so we see them sealed in the first half of Revelation chapter 7. And then in the second half of that chapter, we see the result of their ministry. John sees this after the sealing a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindred and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hand. Remember, white robes always talk about salvation when they're used symbolically in the book of Revelation. And cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came thee? Who are these people from all the nations, including the nation of Israel? Because there's going to be more than just 144,000 Jews saved during the tribulation. Who are thee, this great multitude? And John does a very Jewish thing. He answers a question with another question. And he says, I don't know. Why don't you tell me? And the answer is, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So the gospel is going to be preached to every nation during the first half of the tribulation. And there will be a great multitude saved as a result of this. Back to Matthew 24. Now we're talking about the exact middle of the tribulation in verse 15, and we know that because Daniel who speaks of the tribulation beginning, what is the one sign that begins the tribulation? There is one and only one sign that begins the tribulation, and that is the signing of the seven-year covenant between the Antichrist and the Jewish people. That is the only sign that begins the tribulation. And Daniel says that this tribulation will last for seven years, this covenant that the Antichrist makes is supposed to be for seven years a covenant of peace, but it's a false peace and a false security. For in the middle of those seven years, just after exactly three and a half years, he will break the covenant and take away the daily sacrifice. That means that sometime before the middle of the tribulation, the daily sacrifices will be reinstituted in Jerusalem which means that Jerusalem has to be under Jewish control. And that's exactly what happened in 1968. The Jewish people came under Jewish control. I'm sorry, 1967. And so we see the stage is being set. 
And so Yeshua says in verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, that speaks of an idol set up in the temple. And we know from Revelation chapter 13 that the false prophet animates an image of the beast. And whoever does not fall down and worship that image will be destroyed. And it may very well be this image that's set up in the temple that desecrates the temple and is the abomination of desolation, an idol. Also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we know that the Antichrist sets him up, sets himself up in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. Up to then he had complete political and economic control, but now he wants to have complete spiritual control for the last half of the tribulation. And so he ascends to his full height and power in the exact middle of the tribulation. And so Jesus is saying, when this abomination of desolation occurs, this idol in the sanctuary or this desecration of the temple, that the Jewish believers are to flee the city because the second uh, dis dispersion is about to take place. Jerusalem is going to be sacked again by the Antichrist. So he warns the believers to flee. Then in verse 16, let them which are in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, Revelation chapter 12 explains that God prepares a place, a sanctuary, a refuge for the Jewish people for three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. Anti-Semitism is going to rise to unprecedented levels in the second half of the tribulation. And we already see this happening today. And Revelation 12 says that uh, the place of refuge is in the desert. And here, Yeshua says it's in the mountains. So we're looking for a place of refuge that is both in the desert and in the mountains. Let him, in verse 17, which is on the housetop, not come down to take anything out of his house. There's no time. You must flee the city. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no nor ever shall be. And so if people thought that the tribulation of the first half was rough, the second half is going to be even worse. Verse 22, and except those days should be shortened, there, shall, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And so Yeshua is giving another word of encouragement that even though there's going to be rampant anti-Semitism and hardships and turmoils and tumult, that a remnant will survive the tribulation. Then now Jesus transitions to answering the third question. We've answered two of the questions of the three questions. If you want to get a handle on this discourse, this teaching of Jesus on the end time, there are three questions. What is the sign indicating the imminent destruction of the temple? And Luke answered that when we see it surrounded by armies, which happened and it was destroyed in 70 AD. And we just looked at the various aspects indicating the end of the age, that there would be earthquakes, world wars, um, pestilences and famines, the regathering of the Jewish people, and the great falling away of evangelicalism. And now Jesus transitions and begins answering the question, what is the sign 
indicating his imminent return. And first, Jesus tells us what is not the sign before he gives the sign. And he says, if any man say unto you, lo, here is Messiah, or there, believe it not. That's not the sign when people say to you, oh, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is there. For there shall arise false messiahs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say to you, unto you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So at the end of the tribulation is going to be a total blackout. And then the sign of Jesus' return will be given that he will break forth with the magnificent, glorious light just like the light of the transfiguration, the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God will break through that total blackout. And wherever you are on the globe, you will see this sign. And then comes an interesting remark in verse 28. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the vultures be gathered. I believe what that's talking about is the carcass is the Jewish remnant of believers. And we know according to Revelation 12, that Satan goes out to destroy the remnant of Jewish believers because he knows if he can destroy the Jewish believers, there'll be no remnant to say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, and he will stave off the second coming. Also, if Satan could succeed in destroying the Jewish people as a nation, he will have succeeded in breaking God's word because God says that the Jewish people would always dwell before him as a people and as a nation. And so we're looking for a place of refuge that the Antichrist and his armies are going to gather. They, first they gather in the, in the valley of Megiddo, but then they march to destroy this remnant. And where is this remnant hiding out? Well, you can turn to Isaiah 53, uh, 63. Isaiah 63. Who is this that cometh from Eden with dyed garments from Basra? That this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. You see, in Basra, there is Petra. Petra is a uh, munitions of rock, it's called, in Isaiah, in another place in Isaiah, this place of refuge for the Jewish people. What it is is a little spot surrounded by mountains with only one way in and one way out. And so it's a perfect place for refuge for this Jewish remnant in the wilderness and in the mountains. And so Jesus is traveling in his apparel, and the question is asked in verse 2 of Isaiah 63, Wherefore art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? The Lord says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. Basra in the Hebrew means sheep pen. 
And that's exactly what Petra is shaped like. It's like a sheet pen. It has a fence around it with only one way in and one way out. And Jesus' raiment is stained with blood, the blood of the enemies of the people of God. Because as the Antichrist and his armies come against this Jewish remnant, he destroys them, the Messiah, effortlessly. And his blood is sprinkled upon his garments. And then verse 4 says, For the day of vengeance is in mine heart. Vengeance on the enemies of the people of God. But the year of my redeemed is come. This is good news for the believers. For judgment for the, good, for the believer is good news. Back to Matthew 24. Jesus has just described uh, where the carcasses, the vultures, will be gathered. And then he talks about the great blackout at the end of the tribulation in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the star shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So in the midst of that total blackout, God's presence breaks forth and shines about in the glorious Messiah himself. And at that point, the nation of Israel will experience national regeneration. In fact, every Jewish person that is still alive when the Messiah returns to Basra to rescue the remnant and then goes forth to Jerusalem will become a believer. Wherever they are on the globe, not just in Basra, uh, we see that in Jeremiah 31. Let's talk about that a little bit. Jeremiah 31. Every Jewish person that is still alive Every Jewish person that is still alive at the end of the tribulation will become a believer. Jeremiah 31 is talking about the new covenant. And that's the new covenant that we as Gentiles are partaking of. It's been promised to the household of Israel. But God in his mercy has extended it to the nations and we are grafted into this covenant. Behold, in verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah... The days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice the new covenant isn't promised to the church. The church partakes of the new covenant, but it's promised to the household of Israel. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. If anyone has any misgivings or mistakens that this new covenant is not promised to Israel, it's the Jewish people that were taken out of the bondage in the land of Egypt. And a covenant was made with them, which my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Even in Jeremiah's day, the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses, was considered broken. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, the days of the law of Moses, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, Jeremiah explains what is written on the hearts of the Jewish people in chapter 17, verse 1. 
he says that the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. And so sin is written on the hearts of the Jewish people. And only the born-again experience can save you from your sins. When you accept Jesus as your personal Savior, the only way that the price for your sin can be paid. All of us have sinned. Man is a sinner and he can't save himself. And if you look back at your life, you'll see that there are sins that you have committed that you can't make right. But Jesus died in your place and shed his blood on the cross and rose from the dead, openly displaying that he had triumphed over sin and death. And that, my dear friends, is the gospel. Now, verse 34, the Lord says in verse 33, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is, the people of Israel will be nationally regenerated. It's not the first birth that counts. It's the second birth. But every Jewish person that is still alive when the Messiah returns will partake in the second birth. The prophet Joel says that God is going to pour out his spirit on all of Israel in a supernatural way that they all become believers. Listen to verse 34. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, that is their sin, and I will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah is talking about the national salvation of the Jewish people at the end of the tribulation, those that are still alive. Zechariah, in chapter 13, explains that of the Jewish people that go through the tribulation, only one-third will survive and become believers. And although during the Holocaust, one-third of the Jewish people were destroyed, during the tribulation, two-thirds will perish. Now, go to Romans chapter 11. We see this. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, in part, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. There must have been people at the church at Rome that were saying, well, God is through with the Jewish people. They've forsaken his covenant, and God is no longer dealing with them as a covenant nation. But Paul explains this mystery that Israel as a nation, although has rejected the Lord and his covenant, the new covenant through the Messiah of Israel, that there is, it's the, the hardening is only partial. And that there is a remnant that believes. And Paul himself uses himself as an example of that believing remnant. And so once all the Gentiles come in, the fullness of the Gentiles come in, Verse 26, Paul says, and so all Israel shall be saved. So every Jewish person that is still alive at the return of Yeshua will become a believer. Matthew 24 says at this point, what will happen? Verse 31, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and, there shall, and shall gather together his elect 
from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. There will still be Jewish people in the diaspora once the Lord returns, but he is going to send out his angels and bring every one of those Jewish people back into the land with the sound of a trumpet. Isaiah 27 says the exact same thing. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 27 in Matthew 24. Verse 13. And it shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown, and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria, and the outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount of Israel. And so all Israel that is still alive will be regathered as in a state of faith and belief. Matthew 24. Then Jesus gives a parable saying that uh, when you see these signs coming to pass, that you know that the end is near. And then all of a sudden, in verse 36, Yeshua introduces a brand new subject and a brand new discourse because it begins with the words in the Greek, para day, which always introduces something new. And Jesus says all of a sudden, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. When Jesus came to earth as a man, he made himself completely dependent on the Father and the Holy Spirit to do the works that he did. And but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, Jesus is talking about a coming where he will return that no one knows the time. And we know that Jesus is going to return exactly seven years after the Antichrist signs the covenant with the Jewish people. So he's talking about a different return here because he's introducing a brand new subject. And the conditions during those days will be as the days were in the days of Noah. In verse 38, for as in the days, that is the days of Noah that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Well, what kind of days are those? Are days of people eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage? Those are days of normalcy. It's hardly the days of the tribulation that Jesus just described earlier in Matthew 24. So Yeshua could return for believers at any moment and it will be before the tribulation. Praise God. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left, left for God's judgment. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, and only the believer can be prepared and watch. As the ten virgins, only five had oil and were prepared. And when the other five went to get oil, when they came back, it was too late. The Lord had come. And so I encourage you, I beseech you, to, if you haven't as of yet accepted the Lord Yeshua as your personal Savior, to do so, that you may escape the days of the tribulation. Watch, therefore, only the believer can watch, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, 
that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would have not suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Yeshua is coming for the church, and it could be at any moment before the tribulation. Luke 21 has this to say about this momentous event, the rapture. Verse 36. I'll let you turn there. Luke 21, verse 36. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. What things? The times of the tribulation and to stand before the Son of Man. The only way to be worthy is to be clothed and covered by the blood of Messiah. Let's pray.